Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about breast deduction. Some conclusions I drew after my first encounter with elective breast reduction surgery. This episode is going to contain explicit language and perhaps some adult themes. I don't know how far it's going to go in that direction, but I will definitely use some words that are not uh, not allowed to be used on television. And in fact, I'm going to start with a sound clip that I think sets the stage for the kind of you know journey I want to talk about. What was my perception as somebody coming out of high school and going into college about breasts? and breast reduction surgery, and how did that evolve over time from a specific set of experiences? She had the biggest tits I've ever seen, I think. Yeah, I heard she got breast reduction surgery. What? Making your tits smaller? That's like slapping God across the face for giving you a gorgeous gift. I wouldn't describe myself as a fan of the movie Superbad. I don't own a copy, at least not at, at this point in time. But that one particular moment of the film was, for me, the, the one moment that I laughed the loudest. And it, it calls to mind, again, the attitudes that I might have had at that same age um, about breast reduction surgery. Now, I mentioned a few episodes back uh, that I had written a couple of reunion essays when I attended 10th high school reunions, both my own and a year later, my wife's. So we're talking about being in that uh, you know, late 20s sort of age group where you're 10 years out of high school and going back into that high school environment, which for me was really going back into that high school environment for the first time. My high school reunion was not, in my mind, a success, mainly because of people that I didn't see that I really expected to see. And that was sort of got what got me journaling about it. When I went to my wife's high school reunion, I went confident that there would be absolutely no reason I would come away from that experience with uh, any sort of writing project, whether uh, coming from an emotional basis or coming from an intellectual basis, and certainly not from a combination of the two. But I could not have been more wrong. If I wrote six, seven pages worth of material after my reunion, I wrote three times as much after hers. And if mine was about people I missed that I wanted to see and didn't, hers was about people I never expected to see in a million years and did. I was at the simply syndicated Toronto meetup last month. I'm recording this in early October. And one of the questions, you know, kind of sitting around socializing, talking with other people who podcast. And one of the questions that I got was how much of the inappropriate conversation shows are written out. And the reality is almost none of it is written out in preparation for the show itself. But there are times when I will go back and read, and I'm usually pretty straightforward about when, when the moments of reading will occur. Uh, I've quoted scripture in a couple of episodes back. That's reading, obviously. And a lot of times I'll go back to things that I've written many years ago that I'm coming back to and revisiting with a different perspective now. That was certainly my point of view on um, 9-11 and the, you know, looking back a decade later. This is going to be similar to that and that I'm going to be reading extensively uh, and perhaps completely uh, covering my thoughts after that reunion. So looking at uh, sort of the issue of, of breast reduction surgery from that perspective. And then when I'm done, I want to come back and comment back to it. I don't know 
how much I'm going to correct on this one. I don't feel like it needs the same approach that I used after 9-11 saying, well, how, how did I feel then and how is it different now? But there may be some explaining to do, certainly. To set the stage, the main thing that happened in this high school reunion was that my college roommate went to uh, the same high school my wife did, and that's where we met. And he had mentioned once that one of the girls we had a class with had, had also gone to his high school. But the problem is that this guy was in a different high school every single year. He had relocated from one city to another. They had moved into different homes during the time he was in high school, and that brought him into different school districts. And at one school, he just left because he was unhappy. I think probably unhappy with the racism he encountered there. He was a white person, but it was an all-white school, and the few minorities that attended that school were not treated as and were not treated well, in his opinion. Uh, as I recall, it's been, of course, almost three decades now, right? He mentioned that he recognized this girl from high school, but I wasn't expecting to see her at, at my wife's high school reunion. And that really triggered everything. Because this is one of the few people that I can remember from college who wasn't part of my circle of friends that I have any sort of memory about whatsoever, or at least memory from the perspective of appearance. Uh, I might have a hard time, at least I think I might have a hard time, picking some old friends or old acquaintances out of a lineup if I encountered them now. You can tell that kind of when you get on Facebook and you begin seeing pictures of people. And once you see their pictures today, you can connect with what they look like and, and how they got to, to there from your high school yearbook memory of them. But it usually is a journey. There usually is, you know, uh, there's a lot of change that goes on, right? And perhaps not so much after 10 years, but certainly after this much time. Well, the essay that I'm about to read has one inaccuracy in it. I, I reread it a couple of days ago to see how I might handle a couple of sections where I go into an outline form instead of a free, a free-flowing prose kind of a form. And one of the things that I mentioned in there is not having ever had a class with this woman. And that's not true. I had one statistics class with her my sophomore year in college, and it was a statistics class that I took with my roommate. We both enrolled in the same course because we both had that requirement, and we thought we'd be better served if we took this class together. Some of that's just the nature of math. It's a class that it's good to have somebody to bounce ideas off of and study with if there's a, a regular course of quote-unquote homework to keep up with. And for me, those two first years at university – the math courses felt more like the same kind of high school work where you had a steady flow of homework than anything else. And so we we're trying to make a pact with each other, but how can we make sure we always go? And we figured we we're better off holding each other accountable if we were in, enrolled in the same class. But the bad thing about this one was this statistics class was 1230 in the afternoon, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So three days a week, immediately after lunch. This is not the best time to be going to a class, taking copious notes, learning perhaps some new concepts. And we were genuinely concerned that there was going to be at least some point along the way where one or the other one of us went from lunch back to bed and didn't make that course. That didn't turn out to be the problem at all. Because once we got into the class, took our seats and kind of got a you know, look around, it was a very full class, but it wasn't one of those huge, you know, 100 student, 200 student situations There were 35 of us, maybe 40 of us at the most in the room. This lady immediately caught Glenn's eye, and why wouldn't she? And um, I, I was aware of her presence in the classroom as well. Glenn leaned forward and said two things. He said, first, I don't think we're going to have to worry about missing the stat class. And second, 
You've got to hold me accountable for taking a shower every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday morning, no matter how late I was up the night before, and no matter how late I am responding to the alarm clock. I don't want to go to this class without a shower. That was the kind of impression that she left. I'm going to tell it a different way, though. I'm going to tell it from 10 years further into the future and an essay written after a high school reunion called Struts. Breast reduction surgery is not, I believe, performed unnecessarily. This thesis is meant to persuade me rather than any particular audience. For reasons embedded as deeply in my sexual mythology as the missionary position, I simply must convince myself that breast reduction surgery is always necessary. No doubt, someone could effectively argue that breast augmentations or implants are just as necessary in the minds of those patients. While I won't quarrel with such logic, I must insist that vanity plays a larger role in the addition procedure than in subtraction. Notwithstanding post-surgical implants, most augmentations are essentially a competitively inspired adjustment in appearance. Notwithstanding reductions to offset spinal stress, reductions can be categorized as a retreat from the competitive sexual forefront. This argument is unfair. It's as uncomfortable as admitting that we belittle platform shoes, but view six-foot-tall women who never wear heels as smart dressers. My viewpoint is both a cheap shot and the truth. What led me to this epiphany? Good God, Glenn said during lunch between classes. Her bra must have twin I-beam suspension and McPherson front struts. I don't know much about cars. Not knowing what a strut is makes my ignorance obvious. However, you didn't need to know a word about automobiles to understand Glenn's subtitle. The picture he was captioning was worth at least a thousand more words than either of us could muster. Twin I-beam was a blonde. Whether she was a natural blonde, I cannot say. To call her top-heavy would reveal your flair for the obvious, and I vaguely recall her lacking the hips and buttocks to balance her figure. To be certain, though, I cannot say. In retrospect, her face was too thin and her nose slightly too pronounced to liken her look to a model's. You could safely conclude that she lacked cheek, but I cannot positively say. Twin I-beam was a concern of ours for only two reasons. Everything else ranked below our curiosity. How large is too large? The question was not our concern, nor was the ethics of plastic surgery. In fact, the subject never entered my mind. To my knowledge, breast reduction surgery crossed my path in practice only one time before my graduation into the real world. Later in college, I worked a summer in an office with fellow university students, trying to gain both money and experience before our final year in the non-real world. Two of my co-workers attended the same high school. While I was curious about Jill, a model and an aspiring actress, I was more curious about Jack's sudden distraction. Although my two weeks of work with Jack had revealed him to be focused and energetic, his funk on this day coincided directly with Jill's first day in the office. Unquestionably, Jill was the problem. My assumption of water under the high school bridge overwhelmed any sense of decorum that could have led me to leave Jack in peace. After all, Jill was well endowed. 
enough so to make her Hollywood potential believable if and when her collegiate Shakespeare experience played itself out. For this reason, above all others, I never expected his reply to what's wrong. Breast reduction surgery. What? I said incredulously. She's been under the knife at some time during the last two years. She was larger, I said, much. And he proceeded to tell me a story about his first and last appearance on the high school stage. The play was an improvisational musical based on a musical chairs premise. Whenever the music stopped, all minor characters would stop, literally frozen in time. Jack, who had no prior stage experience, was one such minor character. Jill, an acknowledged high school talent, played two roles. She used the scripted stop times to change costumes between her minor and major characters. I'm sure I wouldn't have been any more prepared than Jack was for the true meaning of the term dress rehearsal on the eve of opening night. Apparently, Jill's costumes varied so significantly from formal to informal that she had sewn the support a woman of her figure needs directly into each outfit. No doubt this made the quick changes in the script possible. It also effectively converted her quick changes into strip changes. Jack swears he did not know what was coming at the time he volunteered to act in the play, and I'm inclined to believe him. The second time he froze to the music, he caught Jill's offstage wardrobe maneuver out of the corner of his eye. The information being processed in that corner of his eye far outweighed anything else within his field of vision. Unable to compensate for the sudden shift, Jack completely lost equilibrium. He turned out of position, ogled, and fell. He literally collapsed under the pressure of his conscience, telling him to freeze, and the rest of his conscious mind telling him to turn and stare. To understand Jack's reaction to the new and improved Jill, you don't need to hear the rest of his story. How Jill never said anything, and may not have noticed since her face was obstructed by the costume change. How he effectively mumbled an apology to the director about getting dizzy because something was stuck in his eye. How he regrouped and performed invisibly during all three performances, including the final show when he did, accidentally, freeze in a sideways glance. How his feelings for Jill changed from covet to concern, and his desires shifted from sexual to sympathetic. It's no small wonder he wasn't permanently scarred by the experience. On the day that I met Jill, Jack was stunned by the change. However, he also seemed pleased, perhaps almost proud of her decision. Beyond the story I've told here, I didn't press Jack for any more details. No statistics were necessary to persuade me about the necessity of her surgery. Multiple choice, though. A. Physical discomfort. B. Tiring of being treated like an object. C. Fears about her career. Or D. All of the above. If you were serious about acting, and Jill would qualify as a serious actress, having a stunning figure would help, but only to a limited degree. Had I asked, Jack would have argued that her danger of typecasting was huge. Her career also may explain the, I would say, wise decision to leave herself post-operatively top-heavy. Jill went from something enormous 
to a large D cup, if I may make a conservative guess. My tone of voice makes it clear that her operation did not mitigate her role in society as a sex object, though. A girl in my secondary school was a serious client of the custom bra market. I don't recall much about her, including her name, so I don't have to change it, because she was a year ahead of me in school. I couldn't begin to guess her cup size. Probably the only larger breasts I've ever seen were at a Florida nightclub. The featured performer was a stripper who advertised her triple X cups. However, those letters are typically used more as advertisement than true measurement. Except for the dollar bills, the girl from my school was treated like a stripper. To say she was objectified would be a major understatement. She was the source of significant graffiti and verbal ridicule. And amazingly, few girls or faculty even gave a disapproving glare in her defense. At least twice in junior high school, someone stole one of her bras from the gym locker room during physical education class. I saw it once when two boys were wearing it down the hall like a Siamese hat. They looked like a couple of coneheads, but the lingerie did fit. What parent would deny this girl a breast reduction surgery if she wanted one and could afford it? In her case, even a 50% cut would leave her a large-breasted woman, which is just as well. Common sense would dictate that big women are naturally meant to be big women. Plus, you cannot naturally reverse the results of going too far in a reduction surgery. Although a second surgery would be expensive and unpleasant, the opportunity would remain if the woman didn't feel she had cut enough. This leads me to a story from a friend's wedding shower. Take it as a given that I'm not squeamish about befriending women. In fact, friendships enlighten many of these observations. An old friend of the bride-to-be arrived late to the shower with a question. Do you notice something different about me? My friend didn't know the answer. Many of the other guests, noticing the woman's posture, presumed that she was advertising her newly augmented D++ cups. Truth is, she subsequently announced, was her recent reduction from an I-cup. In a distracting aside from normal wedding shower activities, she told the group horror stories. She wasn't relating tales of sexual harassment or unwanted displays of affection. Instead, she discussed physical discomfort. The example my friend related to me was bra straps that leave not only elastic lines across the shoulders, but measurable skin indentations from the weight her bras carried. As with Jill, this woman left her breasts large. Presumably she had grown accustomed to living that way, and she did stop the pain. If she wanted to, she could really hurt somebody, said someone at our table, interrupting the conversation Glenn had initiated about twin I-beam. One difference between twin I-beam and the other examples I've cited is that she probably wasn't in any pain. I-beam was bigger than a D-cup, but she certainly wasn't the largest chest in town. Doubtless, no unscrupulous promoter, if given the opportunity, could have sold any stories about this woman's X-cups. Despite our hyperbolic nickname, I-Beam looked normal. I have just attended my wife's 10-year high school class reunion. I was surprised not to see Glenn, who attended the same high school as a senior, when my wife and I were just high school sweethearts. I was more surprised that I did see twin I-Beam there. Vaguely, I recall Glenn saying that he recognized her from high school, but this recollection came from a guy who attended three different high schools. 
I didn't expect to see her, and if forewarned, I wouldn't have been sure I'd recognize her. I did, and I almost instantly recognized the results of her breast reduction surgery. In retrospect, I have no excuse to be shocked. I've heard more than once that breast reduction is the number one form of cosmetic surgery. The recent silicone implant scandal will assure that reductions outgain augmentations in future years. Nevertheless, I keep working to convince myself that these surgeries are always, always necessary. You see, for me, this is not really a rhetorical question anymore. I-Beam's presence has turned an essentially statistical issue into a real or perhaps surreal issue. I know this person. All right, I didn't know her by name until Friday, more than eight years after Glenn's proclamation. Yet I now know that I could have identified her in a police lineup, even if she were surgically disguised. Jack capably described Jill as a girl who went to my high school. He said more than I can say about I-Beam. A woman I saw but never met in college. A woman about whom I made provocative comments during lunch one day. A woman who received one of a score of singing telegrams some friends and I delivered for charity one advent. A woman who, perhaps by being in the wrong place at the wrong time and nothing more, inspired a moniker that will endure in my vocabulary well beyond a decade. Or one of those people you think you'll never see again just prior to deja vu. There was never a potential for any other description. At my own discretion, no potential for a dating relationship ever existed. I married my wife two weeks after graduation from college. Psychologically, I had been married years earlier. That decision was finalized, including any related sexual thought. Acquaintanceship, while always a possibility, did not occur. We shared no common classes or tutors, aside from the statistics class. My friends did not do lunch with her friends. We followed parallel lines. Without intersections, there can be no acquaintanceship. As for friendship, I mentioned I-Beam in writing only once prior to this apologia. Between 1986 and 1990, a friend and I exchanged four essays arguing the specifics of intersexual friendship. I told her specifically that friendships were not properly formed as a means to excise a sexual attraction. If my sole interest at the initiation of a relationship is sexual, then I do not pursue a friendship. In person and over the telephone, we debated the details of this argument for years. She queried me with numerous hypothetical and real examples, trying to determine, A, what a friend would have to do in order to get me into the sack, and B, whether I would or could create a sacred friendship with a stunning sexual icon. These questions remain inadequately answered, as all true speculation should. Yet, once a few years go by without new insights, I think you should proceed and assign these answers. A, none of the above, and B, would does not equal could, therefore, no. At one point of near insight, addressing issue B, I told my friend about the time we delivered a Christmas singing telegram to, surprise, surprise, twin I-beam. Point number one, the given. Glenn's observation and my concurrent opinion. Point number two, the actual equation. 
raising money for charity by singing with friends for couples and secret admirees, and unexpectedly found our group delivering a song to Twin I-Beam. Point number three, hypothetical subset. The hypothetical divisor. This proximate intersection creates an acquaintanceship. Twin I-Beam, having met me, seeks help from me in the form of friendship. Hypothetical quotient. I cannot empathize because of sexual tension. Therefore, I am a negative influence. Seek to take advantage of her. But I don't because I love somebody else. Or, I am a positive influence. Apologize for being unable to help her and recommend the best resources available to me other than me. Point number four. Absolute value. I could not claim to have fantasized about her. Even sitting with Glenn at that table that day for lunch, we had established a standard that made her not real, but objectified. Furthermore, her moniker alone made her an icon. As an icon, she is the one who would have answered questions rather than asking them. Point number five. Therefore, any relationship with her would be inconceivable. This particular argument would have persuaded my fellow essayist better if she had correctly comprehended the objectification I described. Most women do not understand objectification. Some call it immature. Some call it sexist. I'm in no position here to defend myself against these charges. However, I will insist on one concession. If you can tell time by something, that something is a clock. So, my female friends... Let's not deny that male iconology is a clock. We should agree about at least this much. Since I-Beam was not an acquaintance of mine, I had no means to initiate conversation with her this weekend. I was, after all, a stranger at this particular class reunion. Even if we had crossed paths in the past more notably, if, say, I'd set her up on a blind date with a reputable friend... I still would not feel entitled to ask her what happened to her breasts. On the other hand, ignorance does leave me free to speculate. Unlike Jill, I-Beam did not have a career to protect with her physical attributes. I-Beam works with the public, but Jill planned to work for the public as a performer. This should not mitigate the role attractiveness may have played in I-Beam's decision. After all, Madison Avenue still equates sexy with small. The marketing culture in America isn't always right, but it almost always has the last word. Both attractiveness and physical discomfort may have followed I-Beam along her life's path after she gave birth near the turn of the decade. I do not know why she is a single mother. Again, not a question you ask a stranger. Knowing she has a young son, though, does open the possibility that she sought surgery after his nursing was complete. Much like the guest at my friend's wedding shower. This course of action would be sensible and practical. Still, she may have made the decision long before her pregnancy. In a rationale less logical but just as pragmatic, I-Beam may have been ducking the spotlight that shined upon her, no doubt, like it burned my secondary school classmate. We should not underestimate the negative impact of being treated like a sex object. Presuming I-Beam received more dignity growing up than my classmate did, she still could tire easily of the predatory habitat. Many of these things would be hard to ignore, 
rarely receiving focused eye contact from the opposite sex. Knowing that many men perceive your entrance into a room as a two-part process. Feeling the sights upon you at every restaurant, every department store, literally every public place, as if your homeland was filled with snipers. Perhaps I exaggerate. At this reunion, she seemed to be treated with high regard. She was welcomed into the social fold in a manner suggesting an aristocratic background. Someone with such support may not care at all about what the insatiable eyes of the bourgeoisie fix themselves upon. However, no one, least of all a social princess, could overlook a frustrating cycle of two weak relationships. I'm presuming a great deal here, but it's obviously possible that she had repeatedly dated the right type of guy who, as it turns, was more energetically pursuing a relationship with her body than with her person. Mr. Wright is, of course, perfectly capable and quite notorious in some circles of just such a manipulative routine. Imagine discovering for the first time that your new admirer was clearly not admiring you, but them. They might well become your nemesis, or at least an inconvenience. To see that process play itself out over and over again through a couple of weekends per time might be too much to handle. How many such two-week relationships should she be expected to endure? Sooner or later, it's inevitable for her to declare an end to the final transparent two-weeker and declare, I will not be tweaked again. But I digress. While I feel more comfortable with the harsher, more colorful of these possible worlds, I-Beam's decision to subtract the attention she had received could have been inspired much less dramatically. She may have slipped into bed one night several years ago with a resolve that she had seen her last leer, that she would not endure a world filled with construction site workers, that nicknames like Twin I-Beam would never be muttered so softly that she couldn't hear them. Frankly, I'm not comfortable with the possibility that someone might cut herself over something I casually repeated. After all, I couldn't have identified a McPherson front strut if she'd slapped me upside the head with one. To the degree I'm giving myself too much credit, I suppose I'm also taking too much blame. But that's why I'm struggling to convince myself that all breast reduction surgeries, or at least this one, are truly necessary. I just don't trust the culture of plastic surgery. Self-mutilation is an unfair but accurate categorization for even the most innocuous and flawless voluntary operation. My sense of status quo doesn't rest well with the efforts of many in our society to outwit the patterns of nature. To use I-Beam as my microcosm, her appearance at this reunion was both unexpected and ultimately unwelcome. You see, her self-improving endeavor has invalidated my memory. I cannot overstate the conflict I felt. My memory is a treasure to me. To others, it has been stunning, cunning, and at times frightening. But today, I know that I can accurately recall something which is now untrue. Such a subtlety would be easy to dismiss if Twin I-Beam wasn't an icon. She is. The conflict would not be so great if she hadn't commissioned significantly aggressive surgical work that made her a proportional but much smaller woman. She is. I would be dishonest to deny my sense that a standard once set has subsequently been abandoned. So, 
to balance the mutually exclusive facts that I now know to be true, I have convinced myself through a duplicity of hasty conclusions that this breast reduction surgery was indeed necessary. I have accepted every rationale, or more accurately, none at all, as long as I'm sure that no one will perform the surgery within my brain. I reserve as a right that no one will cosmetically alter my memory. Don't nip any drawbacks. Don't tuck away a single flashback for my sake. I'll take for my memory that which is real. I'll live with the petty name-calling, insensitive opportunism, preferential and deferential treatment, humiliating pranks, painful elastic burns, and shameful objectification. My mind will happily endure the truth even at its worst. You see, contrary to popular colloquialisms, I believe that the truth is always, ultimately, pretty. I'm sure Glenn will ask me one day about the first time I saw the new improved twin I-beam. I could tell him that she traded in her souped-up suspension and McPherson front struts for your basic Midas model, guaranteed for as long as you own your car. I probably will. I'll also tell him this. I have not known, and still don't know, this woman who graduated high school with Glenn, my wife, and 500 other people. But I have known and still know this icon we called Twin I-Beam. She may not be the same woman now, but she remains this archetype. She appeared not just that day in college, but all days. The image recalled by her moniker is everlasting. My sexual mythology remains unscathed before and after the knife. Masters of None. HJ from Masters of None inviting you to check us out. We're the comedy podcast that doesn't suck, except for art. And Mike. And art. Totally. Dicks. Check us out at mastersofnoneshow.com. That was Struts, written 11 years after I graduated from high school. In the weekend, literally, right directly in the aftermath of my wife's high school reunion. And uh, an essay that I intended to share with Glenn may have actually popped it in the mail and sent it to him. I'm really not sure I can remember that part. We never had a chance to discuss it. Time and distance separating old roommates. A few years ago, I started interacting with Simply Syndicated at www.simplysyndicated.com. Being a fan of the shows, movies you should see in the definitive word, led to being a friend of many people online who shared that common interest. Over time, the network has added dozens of other programs, and some have gone and some have taken their place. But the forum at simplysyndicated.com has remained really kind of an anchor through the change, the evolution of that media network. I've mentioned Simply Syndicated before, uh, early on in uh, Inappropriate Conversations 11, when I cited Allison Downing as a different drummer. And one of the things about that um, first few months that I was trying to figure out, well, how do I interact in an online forum? Because I'm not, I had no previous history as being a presence online. I had friends who did interact online and were part of very early chat room sort of things. And based on what I could tell from their experience, it was typically not at all pleasant. And I made a kind of a mental note that I never really wanted to be part of a chat room and that I didn't have that much interest in being part of an online board or forum because it didn't make sense to allow people to anonymously attack positions that you maintain or anything that you might share and not actually do you the courtesy of having good, solid, amiable discourse. Simply Syndicated turned all that on its head. 
But the reason I bring Simply Syndicated up now in the forum is that, that the iteration of the forum that was online then, of course, it's gone through several upgrades and has been um, rebooted a couple of times. But the the forum that was in place at the time had a thread opened up by a woman from Scotland, I believe, with a simple question. What's the big deal about big breasts? I don't understand why men are obsessed about it. I don't understand the reaction of women either. What's it all about? And that forum thread led to one of the most amazing online conversations I've ever been a part of. Men answering her question, for the most part, respectfully, more respectful than anything in this Struts essay, as a matter of fact. And in a couple of places where I thought I had something to say, I chimed in as well. Being relatively new to the internet, though, I didn't have a website at the time. I didn't even conceive of the idea of having a podcast. So I didn't have any place to put forward this struts concept. I did refer to it kind of, you know, elliptically, for want of a better word, saying, you know, I've seen both sides of this issue. I've read some essays that I like about women from women who feel, you know, that they've been, that they've been abused and objectified or mistreated because their breasts are, quote unquote, too small or, quote unquote, too large. But the only time I'd ever written about it was this Struts essay. What I learned from that online conversation, though, was that some of the factors that I wrote about in Struts, just guessing, literally just guessing, were real. My naive notion that plastic surgery is always a mistake because people, um, people tend to underestimate their own inner beauty and not connect the dots between how that inner beauty is perceived as outer beauty and efforts to change your outer appearance don't necessarily reap the benefits. You see this a lot with people who engage in what I would call serial plastic surgery. There is no change they can make that doesn't lead them to want to make a further change. And when they're done, some of them hardly look human. But my thought, my expectation was that elective plastic surgery always worked that way dealing with a you know rehabilitation from a major car accident or um, the kind of things that certain diseases can do in terms of you know, radical mastectomy and some of that, that there are people who get you know plastic surgery to recover from things. But I had kind of walled that off and said, well, everything else doesn't make sense. But I don't think that's true now because good friends have been honest enough to share their points of view in a way that kind of opened my eyes to the fact that, yeah, I've got two or three people that I mentioned here in this essay for whom breast reduction surgery made sense. They weren't rare exceptions. They weren't, you know, uh, a dime a dozen. They weren't that common, but they weren't at all rare exceptions. I wish I could tell you the rest of the story, that there was a rest of the story to tell. But literally, that essay called Struts is all I know. I do know in the name, of course, now because of uh, my wife you know, being at a couple of reunions, I haven't gone to a high school reunion since these, this 10 year iteration, because my experiences threw me a little bit and I didn't enjoy it as much as I thought I would. But I'm not going to use the name as insulting as it might be to refer to a uh, flesh and blood human being with real thoughts, feelings and ideas as twin eye beam, especially after all of these years. And with all this perspective, it's better than changing her name to protect her innocence. <laughs> This week seems to be a week where I'm looking back in time, talking about things that are favorites of mine, favorite memories, whether reinforcing or disturbing. And in this case, a different drummer who's a different drummer for no other reason than she's my favorite. 
I've got an abbreviated filmology in front of me, a list of 25 movies. It's not every movie that Elizabeth Shue has been in, but it's the ones that most people would know. The Back to the Future series, um, Hamlet 2, Piranha 3D. But there's 18 of them that I've made a little mark next to because I've seen them. And I suppose to my wife and my family, it's not a surprise that Greg has seen 18 Elizabeth Shue movies. But honestly, at no point in my life have I ever sought out to set some sort of a record. And if I'd been asked prior to recording on this particular day, how many there had been, I would have undercut myself. I wouldn't have given myself credit for having seen 18. It's just that she's been in a variety of roles with a long and varied career, some of which we might consider to be kid stuff or teenage stuff. The Karate Kid, the original one, as the Karate Kid's girlfriend, in fact. Adventures in Babysitting. Cocktail, the love interest for Tom Cruise in that movie. Soap Dish, Hearts and Souls, movies that might have been considered to be kid fare. And then later reinventing her career as a very adult and mature actress, coming back after a four-year break between the movie Soap Dish and the movie Leaving Las Vegas, with her new appearance in Leaving Las Vegas leading to Academy Award nominations and other nominations for her appearance as Sarah alongside Nicolas Cage's suicidal character. One of the reviews I read, it used to be all movie.com and now comes up as a different website. It redirects you. But I read a review on that website that refers very uh, critically, and by that I mean negatively, to a lot of her work. The reviewer, Rebecca Flint Marks, seems to be attaching the box office success or the fame and popularity to the quality of the work. In other words, your ability as an actor or an actress um, can be pegged to you know, the profitability of the films that you're in. And in that respect, the movies that she made after leaving Las Vegas reflect a complete denial of the, of the collateral. You know, you've built up this, this capital, this reputation, this image and films like underneath the trigger effect, the saint weren't getting it done. I personally found those movies to be fine, nothing outstanding, but enjoyable. I liked deconstructing Harry and I like cousin bet better than most people do. But when it came to the films of Elizabeth Shue that really got me back and interested again, her performance as the femme fatale in Palmetto, alongside Woody Harrelson's character, was a highlight for me. And a couple of very personal projects that she did shortly thereafter, one of them, Molly, and in recent years, another one, Gracie. These films reflected projects that she wanted to get done, and uh, in each case, I, I found them to be underrated movies, movies that uh, did not necessarily deserve any Oscar nominations or any high acclaim, but certainly not the kind of movies that I think it's appropriate to give a poor grade to because of their box office. That standard, that box office standard, might just make Piranha 3D one of the crowning jewels of her entire repertoire, um, and I'm not sure that I buy that. The one thing about Piranha 3D that strikes me is that for somebody who was in her you know, mid-40s, 46, 47 years old at the time that that film was shot, certainly holds her own against all the other actresses who were in the film and didn't necessarily have to dress the part as the other actresses were asked to do. But it would be wrong for me to record this, uh, and literally recording this today on Elizabeth Shue's birthday, not necessarily unintentional, to record this in an episode about breasts and to connect the dots as if there's some sort of a, that that's the point of it all. The thing about Elizabeth Shue that I admire most is the fact that she's got more than enough brains to go with it. She isn't, you know, the equivalent of a 2D pinup type of personality. Even when she was uh, 
in high school and beginning to think about pursuing an acting career, she was focused on advanced education. While she was attending Wellesley College and Harvard University, she did start acting, appearing in ads, appearing in a TV series, ultimately turning down the role in Sergio Leone's film Once Upon a Time in America that would be shared by Elizabeth McGovern and Jennifer Connelly. Through this early uh, acting experience, the moments before Karate Kid, she made a commitment to herself that she did keep. She returned to Harvard, finished her degree in government in the year 2000. It goes without saying, though, that her breakthrough role was Leaving Las Vegas, which she appeared in with Nicolas Cage. This is a film that I have a copy of on VHS and have never watched. It's a movie that I um, have recorded on DVR, haven't watched it again either. My wife and I went to see Leaving Las Vegas completely without knowledge about the plot of the film. We went, on Valentine's Day as a matter of fact, to dinner and a movie, and the movie was the new movie with Elizabeth Shue and Nicolas Cage. Talk about a shock. Not exactly the ideal date movie, but a movie that left an impression and left a long-standing impression with, with viewers and producers alike. In some ways, her role in Molly is a little controversial because she plays an autistic woman who undergoes an operation that allows her to become more normal. As a plot, it's a lot like the movie Awakenings. And, you know, I'm going to have to put it right out there that the movie Awakenings handles this plot line much better with a De Niro performance that's much better than Elizabeth Shue's performance in Molly. And yet it left an impression on me. For the movie Gracie, the experiences that she and her brother had where uh, she was a girl on a, a boys' soccer team, informed that screenplay. It's very much a personal project that she wanted to get made, and the director for that movie is her husband, film director, Davis Guggenheim. Guggenheim is perhaps better known for his documentaries, An Inconvenient Truth, It Might Get Loud, and Waiting for Superman. The biography that I found online shows her as being still married and the mother of three children. And again, putting that mother of three children turning, I want to say, 48 years old this year, in context with her recent acting appearances, it's clear that she is going to be an actress who both ages gracefully and, uh, so far, ages naturally. That's something that I appreciate. And it's one connection that I'll make between the topic of this week's Inappropriate Conversation and the different drummer, Elizabeth Shue. I won't challenge the idea that it is just as wrong for me to be favorably or unfavorably judging an actress based on her appearance, based on the um, surgery that she has had performed or that she has not performed, just as inappropriate as it was for me to have 21 pages, standard margin, double space typed uh, of thoughts about you know somebody that I met in college and that I saw again at a high school reunion. I'm going to plead no contest to charges of sexism. It kind of goes with the territory on a topic like this. It's enough to say, though, that if breasts are of that much interest to me, I at least take some solace in the fact that I've thought deeply about it. Considerately, well, that's a different question. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. And the Podbean website has show notes enabled at HTTP colon slash slash inappropriate conversations dot podbean dot com. Thanks for listening.